Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. We imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. The future we imagine, Josh, is a little brighter than Mr. Oppenheimer's there. This week, we look ahead to the future of film with our 2023 movie preview. We've got our top five questions about the new movie year. First question. You can see one film slated for release on July 21. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer or Greta Gerwig's Barbie? The answer may surprise you. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. You know, Josh, I'm still just having trouble adjusting. It's not the same doing a show without a couple hundred people cheering every movie title we throw out, special guests dropping by to entertain, elucidate, and amaze. I mean, if you promise to applaud after everything I say, I'll <laughs> applaud after everything you say. It'll be a terrible uh-huh. listening experience, yes. but we'll both feel better. Hopefully everyone caught up with our year-end rap party recorded live in Brooklyn. We had a great night, talked about that a little bit on our last show, but Josh, we are now... Moving ahead, we happen to be recording this on the day the Oscar nominations were announced. If you subscribe to Film Spotting on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or elsewhere, you may have already seen that we dropped a quick response to those nominations earlier in the week. We called that a reaction shot episode. Any new reactions, any further reactions to the reaction to the noms? (laughs) Oh, man. How how much can we burrow in here? I, I did think it was interesting. We mostly tried to keep it positive, look for silver mm-hmm. linings, you know. Interesting that the Academy said nope to nope across the board, right. I believe. You know, I don't know if they're just they feel like Jordan Peele's had his time and they need to move on or what. But I think I think that movie deserves some more consideration. You're right. We did try to keep it positive and not focus so much on snubs. There will be plenty of time for that, and we'll even do it ourselves to some extent when we do our Oscar night preview in March with Michael Phillips. He'll be back to join us for that. At least that's what we've got on the docket. But it did occur to me when we finished recording, I decided to bust out the Oscar shortlist, those technical categories where you already see who's eligible for the awards And I'd completely forgotten, Josh, that some of the best documentaries of the year, three of my favorites, got overlooked. Descendant, Moon Age Daydream. I really thought that was a lock for best documentary from Brett Morgan. And Last Flight Home talked about that a little bit on our rap party show, Andy Timoner's film. I thought all three of those really had a good opportunity to make the final five. But alas, they did not. And Moon Age Daydream not only got shut out for best doc, it didn't get any type of sound nomination either. I didn't see as many documentaries as you last year, but the one that was my favorite almost cracked my top 10, actually, Fire of Love, did get a nomination. So I'm glad to see that's in the mix. Also going on this week, 
the Sundance Film Festival. It opened last weekend and closes on the 29th. We're keeping tabs on it, and we have some friends there, some friends of the show, who are attending the fest either in person or virtually. I even have one movie I've bought a virtual ticket to. I'm hoping to fit in here, Josh, after we get done recording this. We, of course, like to look at Sundance early in the year, and because of the nature of that fest, we're looking out for titles that might meet the criteria for our annual Golden Brick. Yeah, I haven't done the research to see how many Golden Brick finalists actually did premiere at Sundance, but I bet a fair amount of them. That was the path. So it is a good place to keep an eye out on. Now, our 2022 winner, Charlotte Wells' After Sun, did not play Sundance, but yeah, possibly a rare exception. Speaking of After Sun, our joint number one film of the year, Adam, we do want to congratulate another Oscar nominee from that film, the only nomination that After Sun got, Paul Meskel. We were both pulling for that one, I think. Really pulling for that one, and I knew it was possible. Kind of thought the way Oscar injustices work that it wouldn't work out. We were both very excited to see Paul Meskel get his first Oscar nomination, hopefully one of many more to come. If you happen to be attending Sundance, you come across a title you want to put on our radar, want us to consider for the Golden Brick, We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, feedback at filmspotting.net. Our producer, Sam, has already started amassing a list of titles playing at Sundance that are getting some buzz that do seem to meet the criteria, and we would love to continue adding to that. Listeners, the last couple of weeks, we've been asking you to tell a friend, family member, or colleague about the show, posting about us on social media or taking a minute to rate or review us on the podcast platform of your choice. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, both make rating the show or leaving a review pretty easy to do. I know on Spotify, you got to be listening on that mobile app so you can give us those stars. We do want to give thanks in particular to some folks who have been kind enough to leave reviews over the past week or so. Riggs773, Rydog008, Eli Price, CKYMKY, Poop Pooperson, and Jay Russin LA. Do you think do you think Mr. or Mrs. Pooperson are they related to the the previous Pooperson we heard from? Yeah, I can't remember exactly, Josh, if that was the same name, but we have been getting a lot of those references, and I wonder if we've encouraged people a little too much. Apparently it's it's like preschool or kindergarten around here all of a sudden. You know what though? I'm here for it, and I hope they get increasingly more creative. I did want to mention, too, speaking of these reviews, thank you, yes, to everyone who has said such kind things about the show and given us five stars. They helped me out a little bit, too. You know, I just started teaching my second semester of podcasting at the University of Iowa, and in my introductory lecture, I had a slide that actually had a quote from Stephen Thompson from Pop Culture Happy Hour. I was talking about consistency with podcasts and delivering shows on time and with a regular schedule, and he had a quote about giving listeners the ability to create rituals around your show. And then these new comments come in, and the two that I see just a day or two later, one from Rydog says, my Friday starts on the right foot by listening to Adam and Josh over a hot cup of Joe. Sounds like a ritual to me. And then Eli Price says, it is a weekly ritual now for me to make sure to watch the films being covered in the podcast so that I can fire up the show over the weekend. So I got to explain that to my class and then show real examples of listeners saying, yeah, that's what I do with this show. You've got the proof. I hope you're not sharing positive reviews of the show in every class, though. That that might get a little old. I promise you, I'm not. But your ratings and reviews really do help us 
introduce the show to new listeners, as well as obviously serving my curriculum. Thanks again to everybody. And now let's get on with the show proper and let's get into the year proper 2023. I say that. And of course, I do want to take one tiny step back and look back, Josh, at our preview last year at this time, see if we left any questions unanswered over the course of the movie year. Look at the questions we did get, maybe definitive answers to what's your list look like? My first question, will people stop making fun of me for loving Avatar? I was big fan of the original Avatar when it came out, Uh held strong over the years of derision, even though there are a lot of people who loved it the first time around. And I don't know. I feel like there's a fairly wide divide, but generally I didn't do the research. Avatar, the way of water has been well-received by critics. And I know by audiences, Mm -hmm. not by one Adam Kempinar. So you will continue to make fun of me. I will. Yes entirely continue to make fun of you, but I think I'm alone. All right. My other question, will Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio become my favorite stop motion animated film of all time? What a question. Not even of the year. (laughs) (laughs) I was bold and it maybe didn't reach that mark, but it made my top 10. So not too bad. I also asked, will Adam as a new Bradley Cooper fan, I forgot the occasion for that, but you are now officially a Bradley Cooper fan. I was big on his performance. In something recently. Yes. What was it? It happened. We know it happened. That's I it. asked if you would take the next step and rejoin me as a David O. Russell appreciator. This was on the occasion of the film that at that point was called Canterbury Glass, but became Amsterdam. Yeah. Whatever it was. about that. It became Amsterdam. It didn't work out quite so well for either of us, I don't think. No, it didn't. The title just occurred to me. Didn't even have to Google it. Speaking of one Guillermo del Toro, Nightmare Alley. That's it. Yes. I was a huge fan of his performance in Nightmare Alley, one of my favorites of the year. All right. Another question I had, which Cronenberg family member will mess me up more? David with Crimes of the Future or Brandon with Infinity Pool? Well, as always happens with these previews, a couple of titles end up getting pushed back. And indeed, Brandon Cronenberg's Infinity Pool, that stars Mia Goth, it just debuted at Sundance last weekend. So it's going to eventually go into limited release, comes to Chicago January 27. I believe perhaps at that point, I'll get a chance to answer my own question. Last one here I had, can Olivia Wilde do funny and scary? (laughs) I, we were all looking forward to Don't Worry Darling. In the aftermath, I think I'm the only one who Still looks forward to rewatching. Don't worry, darling. Not really as scary as maybe I anticipated, but I thought pretty clever, well-made, and I kind of had a blast with it. But yeah, not many other people did. Well, clever is different than funny. And I was going to say, we know the answer if maybe you were suggesting unintentional humor. Go ahead. Just keep piling on. Don't worry, darling, Adam. (laughs) Okay. Well, all of your questions were answered other than that one, which, as you noted, you could answer if you were out in Park City or if you check out Infinity Pool here in the next week or so. I can answer three of my 2022 movie preview questions, or we got to those answers over the course of doing the show this past year. At number five, I had, will the match of Sam Raimi and Doctor Strange get me out of my Marvel rut following Spider-Man No Way Home? The answer Mm, is no. mm -mm. My number three was, how will the director who reimagined the biopic with the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford reimagine the tragic tale of Marilyn Monroe? Of course, a reference to Blonde. The short answer, divisively, (laughs) I was a little bit more on the positive side. The shorter answer is yikes. Yeah, maybe yikes. 
Number two, I had, can there be such a thing as too much Tilda Swinton? I already answered that preemptively. Of course not. Or who has better taste, Tilda Swinton or the directors who cast her? She was supposed to be in seven films last year. I think only three of them came out, but I liked all three of them. 3,000 Years of Longing, The Eternal Daughter, and Del Toro's Pinocchio. So that leaves two that could cross over onto this year's list. My number four question of 2022 was, will Disappointment Boulevard be the first time Ari Aster doesn't disappoint me? Or will Joaquin Phoenix and Meryl Streep finally help me appreciate Ari Aster? Or, and see, I'm going indulgence here in honor of the filmmaker in question. Can I possibly handle four hours of Ari Aster? I don't remember now if Meryl Streep is in this movie even anymore. I don't know if it's still supposed to be four hours long. I do know it still stars Joaquin Phoenix and it's no longer called Disappointment Boulevard. Call me disappointed that they changed the name to Bo is Afraid, mm. but we'll find out April 21st is what when th- that film comes out. What do you think the track record is for movies that are delayed and also change titles mm. in working out? Yeah, Pro- I'm probably not very encouraging. <laughs> I'm so encouraged. I was already obviously so encouraged. Yeah. And then my number one last year was which change of pace movie about an artist. And I meant change of pace in relation to the respective filmmakers and starring Michelle Williams will be my favorite film of the year showing up from Kelly Reichert or Steven Spielberg's the Fablemans showing up did play. And I think got generally good responses at Cannes way back in yeah. May 2022. It did look like it was going to come out sometime last year. It did not. And even as we're taping this here at the end of January, it doesn't have a set release date. Everything I've seen is just spring. So it feels like we're finally going to find out what Kelly Reichard and Michelle Williams are up to with this film that I am highly anticipating. And I did have a couple of people on social media I put out there what was an under-the-radar anticipated title for you from 2023. Showing up popped up a couple of times, including people who had seen it at festivals and really liked it. So there doesn't seem to be any reason we shouldn't be getting this pretty soon. That brings us then to this movie year and our top five questions. We'll, of course, highlight some films we are anticipating and maybe at the end we'll even get to just a quick top five of the ones we're anticipating the most if we could only see five movies what would they be but in a lot of cases those titles are pretty obvious and we want to spray to all fields if you will we want to get a little bit more diversity of our movie choices here and one thing i'll say that i don't know if i've ever been really strict about it before and for whatever reason i just decided to be strict this time if i didn't have a release date even a month I could pinpoint it to, then I went ahead and said, it's ineligible. I did only consider here, Josh, movies that I feel have a good chance of coming out. They have a date set. Doesn't mean they couldn't change, of course, but right now, feels like they're going to come out this year. Yeah, I think that's fair. We've been bitten, as we said, by that quite a bit. So I tried to do the same, at least, you know, a spring or a seasonal target was something that I wanted to have in, I think, just about all the titles that I'll mention. All right, my number five question, does Michael Fassbender still have it? (laughs) This is a man, Adam, whose name used to be mentioned every other Mm -hmm. episode, probably starting with Steve McQueen's Hunger in 2008, maybe. That was before my time on the show. Certainly, he came up continuing through the next several years. And then Fassbender got a little 
lost in the X-Men and Alien franchises. I his performances, you know, I've appreciated. I think he's very good in those series, but the project seemed to gobble up a lot of his time and he hasn't really been seen since 2019's X-Men Dark Phoenix. Well, this is related to your Tilda Swinton question a little bit from last year, Adam. There might be three chances in 2023 to see Fassbender on screen. At least here's what IMDb has on the docket. Kung Fury 2, which is a martial arts comedy from star and director David Sandberg. So I expect that would be a supporting part for Fassbender. Next Goal Wins. This is Taika Waititi's sports comedy about the 2001 American Samoa soccer team. That one does have a release date, September 22. And then, Adam, you might have a question around this. This is you think? so much up your alley. <laughs> Apparently, Fassbender is going to be in The Killer from David Fincher, a thriller about an assassin who is starting to crack. And that one has a November 10 release date. The Killer, that's the one that's the most promising, obviously, just seems ripe for that dark intensity that showcases Fassbender at his best. Well, we did not coordinate this, and I'll go ahead and jump ahead to my number two question of the year, which is, where have you gone, Michael Fassbender, Film Spotting Nation, turns its lonely eyes to you? (laughs) You're right. His last movie was X-Men Dark Phoenix in 2019 that grossed a fair amount worldwide, but according to my very basic research today, also lost (laughs) a huge amount of money based on its production budget and marketing and distribution. He shot most of that in 2017 and it was 2016 and 2017 when he followed up the alien movies and some of those X-Men movies with Assassin's Creed and the snowman. We didn't see either of those movies. I don't know. We not only didn't talk about them on the show, I don't think we made time for them even separately. So really 2017 was the last time he was doing film work and I went down the rabbit hole a little bit today trying to figure out the answer. Was he just taking a break? Was nobody casting him somehow? That seemed impossible. Not only is he Michael Fassbender, he's the first winner of Film Spotting Madness. He's Film Spotting Madness acting champion. He's a champ. They're not just going to put him on the shelf. You want me to give you an opportunity to guess? Do you know what he's been doing for the past five years? I mean, sometimes you can get you know, sad answers to these questions. I'm just going to hope he's been on the stage or something. Not the stage, though. You can watch a YouTube series about what he's been doing. It's called Michael Fassbender Road to Le Mans. He decided that he's really passionate, always has been, about auto racing. Okay. And he doesn't want to become a professional race car driver, but he does want to test himself and feel the need for speed, Josh. And he has always wanted to race that 24-hour race at Le Mans, the one that's, of course, featured in Ford versus Ferrari. By all accounts, you can watch this YouTube series. You can see that he put in some decent times. And my notes tell me that he was part of a Porsche 911 team that finished the world's most famous endurance race in 51st place out of 62. Hey, I'm happy for him. Me too. I It could have been worse. So good for him. Welcome right. back, though, also, Michael Fassman. But now he's back. You mentioned Kung Fury 2. I don't know anything about it other than what I saw online today, that it's based on a 2015 viral short that was like an 80s action film parody, but a loving one. And along with Fassbender, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays the president in it. I have no idea if we're even going to see that this year. It seems to still be hung up a little bit. And then you're right. Next goal wins. I have to admit, I'm not so much looking forward to that one. But The Killer, this is a movie 
Josh, if Wikipedia is to be trusted, and I feel like I've heard about it over the years, it goes back to 2007. In November of 07, it was originally announced that Fincher was going to adapt this French comic book series. And then he signed way later, more recently, February 2021, he signed on Andrew Kevin Walker, who he collaborated with on Seven to write the script and got Fassbender in the lead role. They finally did start filming this, and he got Eric Messerschmidt involved, who you might remember from shooting Mank. He's on as the DP. Oh, and guess who else is involved? This is one of those seven Tilda Swinton projects. So we've got Tilda and Fincher and Michael Fassbender together. And it really is that combo, though, Fincher and Fassbender, that I want to see whatever it is they're going to do together. Fincher made, of course, two of the best serial killer movies ever and TV show, the movies being not only Seven, but Zodiac and the TV show Mindhunter. He's now making an assassin movie, and I'm only suggesting those are connected insofar as killing, but also they're these tried and true genres. They may, in fact, be pretty tired genres, but if anybody can breathe some new life into them and reinvigorate them, I think it's Fincher and I think it's Fassbender. So November 10th, can't wait for the killer to hit Netflix. You know, we haven't really talked with Sam or at all about an oeuvre view, looking at a filmmaker's you know, filmography in whole, but Fincher would be a great candidate. He's come up before. Yeah, I know. I know before. we've thrown him around before, and if we've got you know almost the whole year, mm. might be something we have to have to discuss. We'll see. I agree. I like that idea. My number four question: Will Nicole Hall of Center and Julia Louis Dreyfus make magic again? Hall of Center has had a rich career of these incredibly observant contemporary women's pictures that. I think I've mostly flown under the radar. I'm thinking of Walking and Talking, Lovely and Amazing, Friends with Money. She has very ardent fans, and critics mostly do appreciate her. But in terms of a breakout, that didn't really happen until 2013 with Enough Said, and that garnered the best reviews, I'd say, and the most awards attention than anything Hall of Center had done. Though, alas, no actual Oscar nominations for that one. It did star... Julia Louis-Dreyfus also starred the late James Gandolfini in A Middle-Age Romance. Both of them just incredibly funny, very real, so sweet. I think it's probably the best performance. I mean, it's in a different category than what Louis-Dreyfus does on Seinfeld, of course, but she was a revelation in something of a straighter performance. And so I'm very excited to see her back in Hall of Center's latest, which is called You Hurt My Feelings. Here she plays a novelist who comes to discover that her husband, who's played by the Crown's Tobias Menzies, doesn't respect her work. So sounds like a first world problem, yes, but Hall of Center is at her best when she's able to navigate this sort of terrain with a critical eye that's it's more comically observant than smugly skewering of privileged people who nonetheless are going through some sort of struggle. This is playing, You Hurt My Feelings, is playing right now at Sundance. I haven't tried to read too much, but I have seen a couple of positive general reactions to it. So it should get a release date soon elsewhere. I did throw it on here, even though it doesn't have one, just because of that Sundance play. And again, teaming those two teaming up again, I'm sure we'll get it in theaters, hopefully sometime the first half of this year. It was completely off my radar. I didn't see that in the Sundance list or didn't clock it as a Hall of Center and Julia Louis-Dreyfus project. Otherwise, I'd be really interested in seeing it. You and I, over the years, we haven't 
had a chance to review many of her films, Hall of Center. We did, though, both highly recommend Enough Said. I think it was in my top 10 that year. I think both of those performers were in my top five that year or very close. So having Hall of Center and Louis Dreyfus back together again is certainly a reason to keep an eye on that film. I'm going to go back then to my number five question about the movie year, and it is, what will be more satisfying, getting a conclusion to Denis Villeneuve's Dune saga or watching its new cast? I was a little mixed on part one. For better or worse, it eliminated the campiness of Lynch's 84 version, certainly upgraded the production value and did have some impressive set pieces. Part of my struggle with it was the conclusion or lack thereof. You have Zendaya belatedly getting introduced, not doing a whole lot, feeling like we were just being set up for part two, which we were. I understand. I know that's what they were trying to achieve here, and they did. It made me interested in part two. It still left me a little dissatisfied with part one. Another thing it got right was the quality of the performances. That cast had Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, and some other heavyweights who I love watching on screen. Rebecca Ferguson, Josh Brolin, Javier Bardem. I look back at my notes, Josh, and at one point I had in there, the cast is a little bit of a who will show up next scenario. Like you just keep going, oh man, this person's in it too. And those people were Oscar Isaac and Stellan Skarsgård and Dave Batista and Jason Momoa. And Aquaman was Rampling. even in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Skarsgård, Batista, Rampling, they're all back along with Chalamet and Zendaya and Ferguson and Brolin and Bardem. And then did you see this, who they've added? No, I haven't looked into it. Elvis in space, Oscar nominee, Austin Butler. Seriously? Yes. Gets better. Oscar winner, Christopher Walken. Oh, I'm boy. I'm calling it now. Oh, future, boy. Future Oscar winner, Florence Pugh, Lea Seydoux, Wait, Tim Oscar Blake winner, Nelson. Future Oscar winner for Dune Part 2. That's not You're, what I'm saying. Oh, okay. She's just okay. going to win at yes, some point. Okay, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, good luck to her if this is a role worthy of that. But I'm just saying at some point down the road, she is going to take home one of those statuettes. But yeah, Leia Seydoux, Tim Blake Nelson as well. So we'll see. Is it going to be finally getting some satisfaction, some resolution that does it for me the most with this whole tale? Or am I just going to have fun watching all these great performers on screen? We'll find out another November release the week before The Killer comes out. It's November 3rd. Man, I, I mean, that's very exciting. Those are all great names. But Walken alone <laughs> threatens to yank this thing through a black hole all the way back to David Lynch's campy dude. It is hard. It's hard to see that presence in the mix with what was otherwise an intensely serious production. This is one of the things I, I did like about it. So mm -hmm. yeah, that cast is exciting. I was maybe a little higher on the first installment than you, but have the same reservations about not feeling like I can really have a conclusive opinion until we get this second part, which probably what they wanted. All right. My number three question, pretty short. Why Wonka? I know that this is a question <laughs> that comes to mind. That's uh -huh. a variation on this question. Whenever we're talking about an IP project, right? Why? Why again? Why now? Just why? Besides the obvious business reason. But I do have to say, I am particularly intrigued as to the motivation for this third feature that's spun from Roald Dahl's most famous literary character, Willy Wonka. 
Of course, we got Gene Wilder as Wonka in 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which I think everyone agrees is just perfection, right? Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka. Well, Tim Burton decided he'd serve up Johnny Depp as Wonka in 2005's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Unnecessary, yes, but I thought still fun in its own weird way. And now we're getting the aforementioned Timothy Chalamet playing a young Wonka in what's being billed as a prequel musical. So why Wonka? I can propose a few reasons, and one of them I think is Chalamet. I can see it. This is Mm -hmm. something that I can picture him taking on. He is going to have to be willing to get weird, and I think I can see that too. So I'm intrigued by that prospect. Also, this is even more of a plus for me. The co-writer and director here is Paul King, who has built up a career's worth of goodwill as the mastermind behind the recent Paddington film. So he's given us those. I'm going to follow him just about anywhere. Third reason, apparently Olivia Coleman is in the cast. I could not find out who she plays, but I'm holding out hope that maybe she's, you know, in Veruca Salt's family line somehow, if this is a prequel. <laughs> I, li- I like to think about that possibility. So this one is a real test for my anything can be great theory, Adam, but there are a few intriguing elements to Wonka. That one won't be out for quite a bit. The release date is December 15. Maybe we should coordinate these lists a little bit more, but we are flowing nicely into each other's picks. I really thought I'd get a lot of pushback from you on my number four question of the movie year, but you might be even a little bit more skeptical than me. And you went the pithy route. And as usual, I went a little more long winded. My question is, after the Burton Depp disaster, yeah, I said it. Will Timothy Chalamet resurrect or finally bury Wonka? (laughs) Bonus question. Could I possibly have been wrong about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? I'm going back to back. (laughs) I'm going back to back Chalamet here. I wrote Burton Depp Disaster down without hesitation. That was a movie that was reviewed the first year of the show, myself and Sam. I feel like Sam didn't go for it either. I truly can't recall if I actually hated the movie or I just hated Depp's performance so much that it made me think I hated the movie overall. I, of course, expect you (laughs) to overappreciate misfires like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And sure enough, I went to your website. That's what I'm here for. There I see it. Three and a half out of four stars. Josh's line, Burton doesn't improve on the earlier picture, yet he offers enough of his own idiosyncratic joys to more than justify this remake's existence. I figured that, like I said. But I was sure that I was otherwise in the majority. And then I went to Rotten Tomatoes, Mm. where I discovered, to my shock and horror, 83% for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, 72 on Metacritic. My entire world has been turned upside down here, Josh. (laughs) But the director, as you said, of Paddington and Paddington 2, Paul King, should be a good fit for this material. He brings the right sense of colorful whimsy to invite us to step into a world of pure imagination. I am encouraged, I guess... That it's a prequel, Wonka before he became the candy mogul, that it's at least not a remake, and we're going to see a third version of essentially the same material. And you said it, not only is Olivia Coleman here, some other really good supporting players are in the mix. Sally Hawkins, Keegan-Michael Key, and until he proves otherwise, I am convinced the Chalamet can pull off just about anything, even Wonka. But if he doesn't, <laughs> if he and Paul King don't, 
All I can say is, stop, don't, come back. Help. Police. Murder. Step away from the Wonka screenplays. We've got Wilder's Wonka. We're good. Are you, are you, um, what was your avatar line? You're, you're just, you're over it. So, I'm over it. So you'll be over Wonka. I will be over okay. Wonka. I was over Wonka after Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in 05. This one will really do me in if it's bad. We'll find out December 15th. So noted. Just to prove that I was way ahead on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, pulled up my top 10 list archive. Number six in 2005, Adam. Oh, man. Number six movie of you the year. You saw 10 films that year. <laughs> We'll get back to our 2023 movie preview and our top five questions about the movie year in just a bit. But first, a little golden brick spotting. That disturbing bit of audio that our producer Sam just forced you to listen to, but I decidedly did not listen to, is from the trailer for Skinnamarink, a film, Josh, you described on Letterboxd as the Blair Witch Project simmered alongside Poltergeist in a pot of slow cinema. Very evocative writing there. I can I can almost smell that pot of slow cinema. <laughs> you, can, you can smell the skinnamarink. I can. Director Kyle Edward Ball's film has been generally well-received by critics, but was also thrown into something of a wide release and has been mystifying to some moviegoers. It does have a 71% fresh rating for critics, a 43% audience score, and you say, those audiences be damned. You're nominating it for a Golden Brick Award, our first Golden Brick shortlister of the year. Yeah, let's get it going. And, you know, it's a Golden Brick because of the boldness that is scaring away some of these audience members, which happened in my theater. I didn't have any walkouts. I had some people after they saw that I reviewed it ask me on social media, did you have any walkouts? Because others have experienced them. No, just the guy at the end who let out like the exasperated sigh when it was over and the thank God, you know, and then kind of stomped, stomped <laughs> and out. Josh is like golden brick. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, Debbie, who came with me, is giving the guy a high five. I, mm-hmm. I'm going to be paying a price for that one. But I, I told her could be a little weird and weird it is. It's very static. These shots of this house at night, the plot basically, which we haven't said, is that two little kids, siblings, very young, uh, wake up in the middle of the night and look for their dad and can't find him. And after that, some strange things begin to happen. I don't think I need to say anything more because uh, part of the experience of the film is the discovery of what exactly might be going on. But formally... Uh, The director, Kyle Edward Ball, basically gives us static shots of this house from oddly canted angles. It's it's almost as if, and this is set in 1995, so this wouldn't have been around yet, but you know they have the video baby monitors now. It's like a video baby monitor got knocked off the dresser and fell to the ground and is kind of looking at up at the hall or something. So we get a lot of angles like that. We never see these kids' faces, Um, and it's... Yeah, I guess that's where the slow cinema comparison comes from. You're sitting with these shots for quite a while and trying to figure out what exactly is going on. One thing, once things get weirder, the tension raises and I found it to be just mesmerizing, not necessarily terrifying. Uh, I think the gestures the movie eventually does start to make towards more explicit horror somewhat undercut it for me because I was more content to be in this 
realm of mystery, but other people might feel differently. What I have loved is reading the different interpretations of what could be going on here because people have had very different ones. Is this a story, you know, as there are references to the mother, is this a story of divorce? Is it a story of the other parent's death? Um, There could be many things, including some more insidious implications as the movie goes on. For me, you know, it's really about the deeper fear of abandonment that you can, of that sort of abandonment you can feel as a child when your existence is hooked to for better or for worse, the adults in your life. And what happens if that's removed for any reason? Maybe it is divorce. Maybe it is death. Maybe it's some other circumstance. That is a more heightened version of, you know, we can all remember as kids when we woke up in the middle of the night and had to go to the bathroom. It was down the hall. Everyone else is asleep. And it's like, oh, oh, I am I going to do Can I do this? Like, can I get there and back and get the light on in time? The movie delves in that fear. But then it's something deeper and more existential that audience members with the patience for it, it's striking some fairly um, traumatic chords from some of the things I've read, but also chords of um, recognition, you know, and and just remembering what that is like and, and thinking about what that means now as adults. So, yeah, it's kind of a deceptively simple film formerly that provokes a ton. And it's that boldness that I do think qualifies it for Golden Brick consideration. I really do hope to see it actually in theaters before it goes. It is currently in select theaters. If you want to follow along with our Golden Brick contenders this year, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash bricks. Next week here on Filmspotting, it will be our first official review of a 2023 film. We're planning to discuss M. Night Shyamalan's latest, Knock at the Cabin, That comes to theaters on February 3rd. We are planning to share that with our top five M. Night Shyamalan scenes. Should be pretty easy, Josh. We've got five picks each, five twist endings, and we're done. (laughs) We're we're just going to rank the twists. There we go. Or do we limit ourselves to one twist? One twist, maybe. You know I'm going to have to make room, though, for Wahlberg's. What? No. From the happening. That's please, that's my number one. Please, please sure. do. <laughs> that brings us to the new film spotting poll. And here we go with an on-air production meeting. Mm. It turns out that myself and Sam were debating which question we thought was better, which one we should pose to each other, which one we should pose to our listeners. We're only going to actually pose one of them on the website to our listeners, but I'm going to give you both of them right now. You get to decide which question you think is more compelling for our audience. Such power. One of these questions I came up with. One of these questions Sam came up with. Well, you shouldn't tell tell me who's who. I won't. Don't influence me. I I don't care which one you go with. Mm. I just want the one you think is best for our audience. So the questions are, here's number one. What do you, the film spotting listener, think of M. Night Shyamalan? The options, Josh underrated and underappreciated one of the best or solid more good stuff than bad or hit and miss mostly miss or last option a one hit wonder who peaked with the sixth sense here's option number two we're putting Shyamalan in a death match mm. his opponent may intrigue you josh someone who also got his start directing in the 90s also a love him Maybe mostly a hate him, Papo Tour, 
has had some ups and downs like Shyamalan critically and commercially in his career, but is currently enjoying something of a renaissance. And that director is Mr. Pain and Gain himself, Michael Bay. <laughs> well, okay. First of all, I can tell you a question like this could only come from the mad scientist brain right. of Sam You're so Van right. Algren. My question is obviously the boring <laughs> one, and no... Sam's is obviously the really clever one. There is no way he didn't come up with this, but I I knew you'd see through that. Um, but but here I think I I mean I'm trying still trying to wrap my mind around that question. So I'm actually leaning towards yours, not necessarily because it's the better question, but I'm really curious about. Film Spotty Nation's temperature on Shyamalan. I feel like right. I don't have any sense of that. Um, the other question is very definitely interesting and is having my mind go in places I never thought it would. Um, fairly easy for me. You know, I, I'm definitely more of a, despite Pain and Gain being on my top 10 list during that year, way more of a fan of Shyamalan. Um, maybe it's not as easy a choice for other listeners, but yeah, I kind of feel like I want to find out where listeners stand with him. That's where I'm at. That's that's why it was my question. I think it was something that came up in an actual production meeting the three of us were having recently where we were kind of wondering out loud, what is the temperature around Shyamalan these days? How do people really feel about him? It seems like we're past the point where a new film from Shyamalan equals a definite full discussion and review here on this show. But then we are going to do that with knock at the cabin. So it's not like those opportunities don't present themselves. We did it with the visit, but we didn't do it with old though. I know that's something you saw. So I am curious as well about how our audience feels about Shyamalan as a director. And I'm using the poll question to check that temperature a little bit and maybe help guide us not only when it comes to that upcoming review, but perhaps future reviews of Shyamalan's work. I was trying to answer this question, and I think I have to abstain. He's made 14 feature films, not counting Knock at the Cabin. And it divides up pretty evenly here, where there's five of his films I haven't seen. Five of the 14 I haven't even seen. Praying with Anger, Wide Awake. Those were the two that preceded The Sixth Sense. That wasn't his debut. It was just his breakout film. Didn't see 2010's The Last Airbender. Didn't see 2013 After Earth. And didn't see Old, as I mentioned, in 2021. Now, I've got movies, two of them, that I consider the bad Shyamalan films, The Happening and Lady in the Water. I've got three more that I'd say are not bad, but they're not so good. That's 2004's The Village, 2016's Split, and 2019's Glass. Then there's two that are good, and one is decidedly better than the other. That's 2002 Signs, which I do like considerably more than 2015's The Visit. And then finally, you get the really good. It's the back-to-back, -back, 99 and 2000, The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. I don't think he's made anything that stacks up against those two. So again, you look at the math, 14 films. I haven't even seen five of them. Two that I think are bad, that's half of them right there. Three more that I think are not so good, that's you know, that's 10 of the 14 I'm kind of out on. How do I vote in this one, Josh? I think maybe he's hit and miss, mostly miss, even though my gut instinct isn't to say that about him as a filmmaker. It's to say that he's solid. 
Well, I think for you, you know, the the highs, particularly six cents, are are really high. So mm-hmm. it, it probably feels a little strange to say hit and miss. Uh, the correct assessment, which right. which I'll give you, is, uh-huh. and I'm not a completist either, though I still need to see three. I think praying with anger, and then that fallow period, uh, the last Airbender and After Earth. I didn't see either of those, so I've missed out on three. And I think the one that I would say. I actually don't like is the happening. Not even I could be on board with the happening, but I did like Lady in the Water. Glass, you know, mildly positive on. I think all the others I'm fairly positive on, and even something like The Village I like quite a bit. I put signs up there in unbreakable territory, which for me is very close to the sixth sense. So I am not about to say he's... I mean, I'm tempted by underrated and underappreciated just because I feel like some people do hold their nose around him more than is necessary, but I couldn't go so far to say one of the best. So maybe we just take that out. I don't know you that could. you need one of the best. It could still be the top yeah, category yeah. there is to say, if you feel really strongly about his work, you're a fan of M. Night Shyamalan to say you think he's underrated and underappreciated. Yeah, I would feel better about voting that way if it just said that. Otherwise, solid, more good stuff than bad for me. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess we have the same answer to the <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan versus Michael Bay death match. That is definitely Shyamalan winning that. Yeah, we agree. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they have a new pairing. They're looking at the new Saint-Omer from director Alice Giop and Richard Brooks in Cold Blood. It's an adaptation of Truman Capote's best-selling nonfiction novel. Very eager to listen to this one myself. Saint-Omer made my top 10 list, just squeaked in there at number 10. And now that it is getting a little bit of a wider release in major cities, There's been some good discussion on various podcasts about it and people writing about it, so I love to see that. The Next Picture Show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. There's something happening to me. There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. My number five movie question of 2023 about that film. You just heard a clip from Dune. Before we get to our final couple of questions about the new movie year, we wanted to share the results from our most recent film spotting poll. Dune was one of the options as we asked you to choose one 2023 sequel and I'm learning now that maybe we need to put an asterisk there next to sequel. Get to that in a moment. Among a pretty large pool of compelling choices, which one is the sequel you're most excited to see? We give them a lot of choices because there are a lot of them coming out this year. And we left some on the cutting room floor. There's just that many coming out. I'll run through them briefly here. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Creed 3. Dune Part 2. Fast X or Fast 10. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, John Wick 4, Magic Mike's Last Dance, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, or if it was one of those we left on the cutting room floor that you prefer, you could go with other and write it in. How did it come out, Josh? Well, speaking of being over it, Adam, film spotting listeners might be over the Fast and Furious franchise. It seems that way. Fast X 
less than 1% of the vote, which is also what the category of other got. So maybe one we don't necessarily have to review, even though we have appreciated some of those installments here on the show. With 2% of the vote, it's Creed 3. 3% went to John Wick 4, and 4% went to Magic Mike's Last Dance. That one's kind of a surprise, knowing the Soderbergh love among listeners. 5% of the vote went to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And then a little jump here with 9%, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. All right, top three vote-getters. 14%, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. 18%, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which means Dune Part 2 took the poll with 43% of the vote. 43% of the vote. That's shocking, especially with so many options there. I really thought that Spider-Man and Indiana Jones would fare a little better than third and fourth. But Jeremy B. says he who controls the spice controls the film spotting 2023 sequel poll. I I mean, we've got to hear walk and say that, right? (laughs) We do. If Sam was here, he could nail a walk and do an impression. (laughs) We also heard from Andrew Weaver. Indiana Jones is iconic. How could I choose anything else? However, I do have doubts. They lie in my hatred for the kingdom of the crystal skull. How could a film starring Kate Blanchett and Harrison Ford end up being so bad? Please, please, please. We cannot let that happen again. Hey, I love crystal skull. So I don't know what Andrew's talking about. (laughs) Billy Ray Bruton finally says all it takes is one look at the trailer and a shirtless Michael B. Jordan and Jonathan Majors to know there is only one choice here. I love this. And Majors is giving a three act performance in a trailer. (laughs) He is. I've seen that trailer three or four times before other movies, and Majors is just such a beast. And I mean that physically, but I also mean that in terms of his acting prowess. He is a formidable presence on screen. So I I get what you're throwing down there, Billy Ray Bruton. Let's get back to our 2023 movie preview. So far, looking at those nine different titles we gave you, only one of them has come up, Dune Part 2. We'll see if that changes with these final two questions. Josh, what do you have? Well, my number two question decidedly doesn't involve a sequel. Will Kitty Green's The Royal Hotel get a white lotus bump? Or are we all feeling stuffed from too much eating the rich? After tiring of everyone around us talking about the HBO series The White Lotus, Debbie and I finally gave in. Recently watched season one. This is creator Mike White's cataloging of the privileged foibles of guests at a Hawaiian luxury resort. White Lotus certainly fits in with the eat the rich trend that we saw at the movies last year. I'm thinking of Triangle of Sadness, the best picture nominated, I should Mm -hmm. say, Triangle of Sadness, Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, the recently released The Menu, also probably others I'm not thinking of. I'm not sure if this trend is going to help or hurt the Royal Hotel, which is writer-director Kitty Green's follow-up to the excellent The Assistant. That was her atmospheric account of working for an abusive film producer in the manner of Harvey Weinstein. Now, The Assistant's Julia Garner returns for The Royal Hotel, which follows two friends who take a working holiday at a resort that's known for cycling through young female employees. Jessica Henwick from Glass Onion co-stars, as does Hugo Weaving. The assistant made my top 10 list in 2020, so whatever Green did next was going to be highly anticipated by me. So whatever the topic, eat the rich or not, I am in. There is no release date yet for the Royal Hotel, but Neon has acquired the distribution rights, so that bodes well for its release. Yeah, maybe that's why I missed that one. Didn't see it listed among the titles with a set 
release date, so not eligible for my list, but based on the assistant and Kitty Green, Julia Garner reteaming, I'm with you on being very interested in that film. We already heard my number two earlier in the show, so we're going to go back to my number three question of the movie year, and that is, could David Gordon Green please sell his soul to the devil so that he can make interesting movies again. I can't believe this is happening. AKA could the exorcist actually be good. <laughs> I'm going from a movie with a 1971 connection was talking about Wonka there previously to a movie with a 1973 connection. David Gordon green just wrapped up that trilogy of Halloween reheats Halloween then Halloween kills, then Halloween ends. I think that's how it goes, right? Ends is the, the last one. Let's, let's just assume. It seems they were all relative box office successes, if not critical ones. And now he's turning to what I think is the greatest horror film ever made. It's a bit of a reboot slash, as you like to call them, reheat. It's also supposedly the beginning of another trilogy. That's what they're already writing in for this film. And it's also a sequel to the original. They're pretending, apparently, that the actual sequels to The Exorcist never happened, and that's probably okay. They're going to pick up where that first one left off, and that includes with Ellen Burstyn. And I think that is a reason why I'm actually even asking a question about this. The fact that Burstyn is back, Chris McNeil herself from that original, and Ann Dowd, who's a great character actress love seeing her on screen leslie odom jr also in the cast what i have sussed out the little tease i read somewhere online is that leslie odom jr plays the father of a possessed child he's desperate he tracks down chris mcneil that's all we know about the plot right now a quote i saw from david gordon green said with these with these exorcist stories i've got stories to tell I've got an imagination to express, and the way I can do that within these movies is an incredible opportunity. I hope he does. I, I genuinely hope he's got stories to tell, and he's got an imagination to express them, because this movie's coming out October 13th, and with it being Ellen Burstyn reprising that role and my adoration of that film, I'm going to have to go see it. Yeah, this has to be one of the most curious turns of a directorial career we've ever seen. And, you know, I, I'm all for someone trying something like this. For me, in retrospect, I sigh a little bit just because I wasn't a fan of what he did with his Halloween films. And I know they have their defenders, you know, the Jamie Lee Curtis coming back and the, the different readings you can give to some of those movies. They just didn't work for me. So I'm not quite as confident that it'll work this time around. But let's see. I'm definitely intrigued that Ellen Burstyn is going to be a part of it. And David Gordon Green, absolutely an incredibly talented filmmaker. I think I'm just with you. Maybe maybe a break between these two with something a little more interesting might have, might have been good. But let's see when it comes out what we get. All right. My number one question for the upcoming or this movie year, I should say, can there be such a thing as too much Wes? Now, because of production delays due to the pandemic, we're going to get two feature films from Wes Anderson this year. My question also, is this a good thing? I mean, some people grew exhausted by his style, especially after the French Dispatch. We weren't among them, Adam, but that movie did 
triple down on the density of ideas, the aesthetics, and and just the plain speed of previous Wes Anderson pictures. I mean, even I needed a second sit. I liked it the first time, but had to go back to it and let everything wash over me once more to fully appreciate what was going on in the French Dispatch. Am I ready to do that two times this year? Well, let's look at the films. The first one up is Asteroid City. Here's the IMDb plot synopsis. The itinerary of a junior stargazer convention is spectacularly disrupted by world-changing events. Margot Robbie and Tom Hanks are two of the most notable new names, but this also features Hong Chao, Oscar-nominated Hong Chao, and Maya Hawke, as well as a bunch of other Wes Anderson regulars. That one is going to come out June 23. Then it's looking like, not a set release date, but everything is pointing to Another Roald Dahl adaptation from Wes Anderson after Fantastic Mr. Fox, this time The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. So this is a collection of Dahl stories. I don't know if that means it's going to be an anthology like French Dispatch. All we do know at this point, Ray Fiennes, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Dev Patel are going to be in it. So as I said, no set release date for that. Honestly, after the density of French Dispatch, I kind of wish there was more space between these two projects to just give them the area they need to breathe. But I guess, you know, better this than a two-part Wonka. You know, we get Wonka part one in June and Wonka part two in December. I'm not sure I'd be up for that. Let me put this in PTA terms for you, Adam. Would you be excited about two films from your preferred Anderson in one year? Or would that seem kind of daunting? It would be a little bit daunting, but I would certainly welcome it. I'm I'm good with all the PTA you can throw at me. I think you're good, though, with the space you want, because I didn't see anything that really suggested Henry Sugar is going to come out this year. Asteroid City's already been pushed back and rescheduled and delayed a little bit. So I think we're probably just going to get that one this year. Okay. Yeah. June 23 is when that's coming. My number one question of 2023 is, can Greta Gerwig start her solo directing career going three for three. We never talked about it. I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. Be honest. How did you react when the Barbie teaser trailer dropped the 2001 parody? Honestly, didn't watch it because I I tend to avoid trailers, even for something like Barbie. I wasn't Mm -hmm. worried about the plot being spoiled, but I couldn't imagine what Greta Gerwig was going to do with a Barbie movie. And I didn't want to imagine it until I saw the whole thing. But then my daughters were asking me about it and, you know, they're, they're in the prime Gerwig demographic. So we're asking me what I thought. So I did sit down and watch it with them. And I, I kind of thought it was pretty brilliant. Since the beginning of time, since the first little girl ever existed, there have been dolls. But the dolls were always and forever baby dolls. Until... I don't know if it's, as people have said, going to be part of the film or not, but as I a, doubt it, a teaser piece, really loved it. I think I probably prefer that they went that route and gave us something that at least feels to me like it almost surely has to be a standalone entity rather than trying to show us what this Barbie movie would be and keeping us in suspense a little bit. I did appreciate that. And I really appreciated the attention to detail. If you match it up and someone did this on Twitter, it's a shot-for-shot remake of the Kubrick intro. So I do appreciate that, but it didn't necessarily make me feel better about what we might get. That film, 
and that intro specifically to 2001, that beginning is one of the most imitated and referenced pieces of cinema ever. So I guess I didn't feel like it was maybe as inspired as some others or as inspired as it could be. But you used a word earlier in the preview that applies to everything we're talking about in this list, whether we're conscious of it or not. IP. (laughs) That certainly applies to Barbie. And I found a quote from Margot Robbie, who is playing the title role on Slash Film. She said, the IP, the name itself, people immediately have an idea of, oh, Margot is playing Barbie. I know what that is. But our goal is to be like, whatever you're thinking, we're going to give you something totally different. The thing you didn't know you wanted. Now, can we truly honor the IP and the fan base and also surprise people? Because if we can do all that and provoke a thoughtful conversation, then we're really firing on all cylinders. So let me be clear. I don't really have any issues with any part of that quote. It is what it is. Barbie is a toy. It's a fashion doll, whatever you want to call it. It is IP. She should be talking about it in that kind of meta way, or at least in a self-aware way like that. But I can still simultaneously regret a little bit that we even have to have actors and actresses and directors talking about their art in that way and throwing out words like that. But as I was referencing just a second ago, everything we're talking about is IP. It's all sequels or it's stuff that's based on previously existing material. My other questions, Dune, Wonka, The Exorcist, The Killer even, right? Based on a French graphic novel. There's not a lot here that is wholly original. I would be excited to see anything Greta Gerwig makes, regardless of subject matter, regardless of whether it's independent or, as this one is, her first big studio-backed project. She's earned that with Lady Bird and Little Women, two films that I don't just love. If I was putting together a list of the top five or ten films of the past six to 10 years, the best films of the past six to 10 years, they're both going to be on my list. That's how much I love those two films. So I do trust her. And I think if anybody can give me something I didn't know that I wanted, as Robbie suggested, it's probably Gerwig. But also what's the best case scenario, Josh? I know we're just gonna have to wait, but Lego movie meta-ness that's, and cleverness? That's where I was going. I mean... Is that is that the best case scenario? And if it is, I don't know that I need that. Uh, Lego movie was my favorite movie of the year it came out. Sure. And I went into it thinking, asking some of these same questions. Again, even knowing you know the talent of the filmmakers involved and having liked some of the stuff they did before, it was really... It was like the Why Wonka question, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the level of intelligence... And comedy and animation craft that was brought to that, I could never have expected no. that that's what we would get. And but so you could maybe, expect it. That wouldn't be a surprise then if that's what we got with Barbie. And so I'd be, I don't per- think I'd be that's perfectly what they're happy us. with it, though. Like yeah, I, I would be disappointed it, I think. if it reached that level of inventiveness and surprised me. I guess this is the terms I would put with it. I'm not looking for those exact qualities, but surprise me by what could be done with that basic idea. And we could, you know, we could bring this back to the question we asked at the top about the Barbie or Oppenheimer, right? I mean, Oppenheimer, every biopic is IP, essentially. 
it's intellectual property. It's just this name that most people recognize. What that's branding, that's marketing. You know, Oppenheimer, Barbie. Sure, Barbie's maybe a little more popular, but um, it's somewhat the same sort of idea. So I guess if I almost lean towards Barbie is a little bit my general aversion to biopics, a little bit being burned by Tenet and um, having to remind myself as someone who placed a toy movie as their favorite of a year, I cannot scoff at any future toy movie endeavors, especially if they're led by talents like Gerwig. I think I was a little surprised at the poll results based on Sam's question he threw out on Twitter, where he said, choose wisely. You can only see one film that comes out on July 21st. Is it Barbie or Oppenheimer? It was so close. Oppenheimer did win, but if he had left it open for another hour, that probably would have changed. Maybe another 10 minutes. Barbie had 49.4% of the vote. The Nolan film had 50.6. We posted it on Facebook as well as a question not as a poll, so we couldn't actually see the numbers. But in terms of the comments, it was overwhelmingly pro Greta Gerwig. And as much as I already stated, I love her two previous films and am ride or die with Greta Gerwig. I'm going to go with a listener on Facebook, Thomas Robertson, who said simply Oppenheimer, the subject matter is more interesting to me. This is a case where I just if I have to pick between the two, and fortunately, I don't. We're going to see both of them and talk about both of them. But if I could only see one, of course, it's a little bit intriguing to just be finally aware of what Barbie actually going to be. There is that unknown factor that you don't have so much with Nolan and Oppenheimer, perhaps. But just based on the material itself, I can't get more excited about a Barbie story right now then Oppenheimer. That would be the one I'd see. But if anybody could prove me wrong, it's Greta Gerwig. I can see it now. Our, our Barbie versus Oppenheimer review show. Remember when we used to do those? Yeah. With two big releases. That's we don't want to pre-box either of these movies. So no, we no we're not gonna we're not gonna do that. But it, it is what it sounded like at this point. Barbie and Oppenheimer, as we noted, come out July twenty first, the earliest movie. I have on my list. I didn't mean to go with a lot of fall movie options, Josh, but that's the way it worked out. Those are our top five movie questions for 2023. In terms of just pure anticipation, which are the ones you would have to see? Yeah, so number one is the West, Asteroid City for sure, and I'll pair Henry Sugar with that if it comes out. My number two hasn't come up. How Do You Live? This is Hayao Miyazaki's surprise farewell film after the wonderful farewell film we got from him in 2013, The Wind Rises. Really surprised this one hasn't come up. It's one of these titles that got pushed back, but Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, that's my third most anticipated sort of Scorsese in Western territory, it seems like, somewhat. The number four most anticipated for me has been mentioned, Kelly Reichert's Showing Up, her follow-up to First Cow with Michelle Williams. And then number five is, for me, RMN. I mentioned this film Munju. from Romanian, yeah, director Christian Munju. In the fall, I think maybe around the time the Chicago International Film Festival, I lamented how he'd fallen off my radar, despite loving or appreciating four months, three weeks, and two days, as well as his film Beyond the Hills. Just basically said I didn't want to miss his latest. RMN explores tensions in a multi-ethnic Transylvanian village, and I saw the trailer for this 
before Skinamarink, of all things. And it was soaked with dread and tension and familiar imagery that just reminded me of why Munju's work is so gripping. So I am very eager for that one. Just on the outside of looking in of my top five, though, Barbie, Oppenheimer, Dune Part Two. Yeah. We have some overlap there, Josh, and you mentioned Killers of the Flower Moon and Scorsese and maybe being a little shocked that it hadn't come up yet. If we're just being totally honest, the only real question for me, you could throw out every other thing I said. The only real question for 2023 is how many Scorsese DiCaprio movies will we get to see this year? One, two or zero? As of right now, no one can say definitively we could get Killers of the Flower Moon. We're all hoping we'd get it in November of this past year or December got pushed as of right now, still doesn't have a date though. If you read David Hudson's most anticipated films of 2023, which is on the criterion website and it's indispensable. He notes a critic who was at a screening at the Metrograph Scorsese was there with Joanna hog. And he supposedly said there that killers of the flower moon will come out quote unquote in a few months. We shall see. But then if you look at rotten tomatoes, they're saying we might get Roosevelt from Scorsese in July. Again, we will see whether or not we get any of those or both of those. That would be my number one, though. Killers of the Flower Moon, new Scorsese. That's the number one film I got to see. I've got Fincher and the Killer. After that, I'm, I'm coming off as very, very macho on this episode with all mm-hmm. this killing, Josh. How about I'll soften that a little bit with Wes and Asteroid City as my number three. Kelly Reichert's showing up, aforementioned, my number four. Oppenheimer 5, just on the outside looking in, would be Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is there, even though it's James Mangold. I do have another honorable mention question, which is why does the title The Dial of Destiny annoy me so much? (laughs) I think it's because it makes me think of Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny, and I just can't Mm, get over that for some reason. But then there's two others that I can't really include in here because... They probably won't come out this year. They're in that David Hudson article. People are talking about them. They're in production both, I believe, but we can't really trust anything else as far as a release. But Ridley Scott doing Napoleon with Joaquin Phoenix and then Bradley Cooper playing Lydia Tarr's hero, Leonard Bernstein in Maestro. Those would certainly be in contention for my top five if I really thought they were going to come out this year. And I think, is Cooper directing that one, did you say? He's directing it. Yeah, He's directing it and playing Leonard Bernstein. So we'll see if he continues to grow, not only as an actor, but as a director. Those are the top five questions we have about 2023. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd. Adam is at Filmspotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're basically trying to get the temperature of how listeners feel about M. Night Shyamalan. Also on the website, for show t-shirts or other merch, go to Filmspotting.net slash shop. You mentioned connecting with us, yes, not only on Letterboxd, but also on Twitter. And Facebook has been really engaging lately, posed a question about the Oscars and the nomination our listeners are most hopeful to see here as they were announced on Tuesday morning and got over 100 responses just to that question. So appreciate seeing everybody over there being so active. 
Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and get it ad free. You also get a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. This month, it's coming out on Monday, January 30th. In honor of the Oscars, me, you, and Sam did our best picture winners draft. How do you think your list came out, Josh? Um, my mind is racing to remember what I picked as you were talking about. I remember being pretty happy at you have the a good time. List. Yeah, I think I think we're all well. I think your list and my list is pretty strong. I think Sam's is a little shaky, and I can only say that because he's not here. Yeah, I can't believe he put Temple of Doom on it. Didn't even <laughs> get nominated. <laughs> As I recall, if you really want to get involved with film spotting, you can sign up to be a film spotting advisory board member. We've got our next quarterly meeting on February 9th. Who doesn't want to be on more Zooms? Actually, it's really fun. We talk with our listeners. We give you previews about things we're doing on the show. You get to weigh in and help really choose your own adventure. You get to set the direction of film spotting for the months to come. More information again at filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, my number six film of the year, finally more widely available. It is Close, one of the best international feature film nominees at the Oscars. On digital, Shotgun Wedding at a destination wedding. The wedding party is taken hostage. That stars Jennifer Lopez, Josh Dumel, and Jennifer Coolidge. It's on Amazon Prime. There's only one opinion about that movie I care about. It's Mariah Gates, and she said it's not good, Josh. Not good, huh? No. Shocking. You People is also out. Jonah Hill Dates Eddie Murphy's daughter, Julia Louis-Dreyfus stars in that one as well, along with Nia Long and David Duchovny. In wide release, you can see fear about a group of friends at a remote hotel who are forced to face their worst fears. And if you really want to get freaked out, you can see Infinity Pool. Brandon Cronenberg's follow-up to 2020's Possessor. Mia Goth is in that. Also, Alexander Sarsgaard. They're a vacationing couple. And they venture outside the resort grounds only to experience what we all do when we go off the beaten path, violence, hedonism, and untold horror. Man, I, I guess everyone should just stay home. No vacations. No doubt. But if you venture out just to what should be a safe cabin in the woods with your family, terror awaits you there from M. Night Shyamalan. We're going to see Knock at the Cabin. We're going to talk about that next week, and we're going to do our top five Shyamalan scenes. I didn't throw this in for a production meeting, but Sam did suggest this week that we should change it from scenes to performances. And I pushed back. What does your gut say? Yeah, I mean, he's... He I don't think of Shyamalan great, as that filmmaker, even though he gets very good That's why I paused. That's why I paused. I think of him as his as staging a perfectly crafted sequence first, but he does get some really he does. strong performances. Maybe we can work those into our scenes. Maybe, Maybe there will can. be a scene that's chosen because of the performance. I'm thinking of one right now and a certain Tony Collette. So <laughs> I think that might be a joint pick, Josh. Okay. Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.